Welcome, everybody. It's time for another episode of Asher Sales Sense, brought to you by Asher Strategies, the only global sales training company that integrates leading sales methodologies and the latest neuroscience studies into a simple and repeatable 10-step process for sales success. I'm Susan Finch, your announcer for Asher Sales Sense. And I'm Dave Potts in the Asher Strategy Studio in Washington, D.C. Our host today is John Asher, CEO and founder of Asher Strategies. John's guest is Nick Shaw, co-founder of Renaissance Periodization, a multi-million dollar health and fitness company that has improved the lives of hundreds of thousands of clients around the world. Nick has helped to coach numerous world-class athletes, including CrossFit Games champions, international medalists in weightlifting, UFC fighters, Navy SEALs, and Olympians. The title of the show and his new book is Fit for Success, Lessons on Achievement and Leading Your Best Life. Over to you, John. Welcome to the show. So happy you could join us. Well, thanks so much for having me on. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. So, you know, you've had a lot of success in your career with coaching some really outstanding folks. And I know during this pandemic, you've had some time to reflect and write a book. Like many other people have had that time as well. What really motivated you to write the book other than just suddenly have some time on your hands? Yeah, yeah. Well, we had a lot of time to reflect, that's for sure. And on my side, my, my family, my wife particularly had some health issues before COVID really started and you know, we had to deal with all that. And so we were heavily quarantined, really had to take that seriously. And I just thought to myself, you know, I know I'm going through this stuff and it's really hard. And I know that everyone else out there is, well, there's just a lot of bad stuff going on in 2020. I just, I knew that there was a way that if you kind of took all the habits successful people had, and whether that's, you know, working with athletes or, you know, being an entrepreneur or a CEO uh, in sales, whatever it is, the same habits are going to help, you know, get you through, you know, overcoming adversity. So I just thought to myself, well, now is a good time to do that because 2020, after 2020, uh, everyone's going to need, you know, some tips and advice to get through this. So that's really uh, how and why the book idea came out last year. Excellent. I've actually written three books myself. And it actually was not a lot of fun writing the damn things. It takes a lot of work, as you know. I did learn, however, that it's always good to have an outline before you start writing, <laughs> at least to kind of give yourself some direction. So what's essentially the outline of the book? Yeah, yeah, no, you're absolutely right. The outline is really critical. And that's kind of, so I've been doing a lot of reading, you know, a lot of thinking. And then, of course, everything happened in 2020. And it sort of made me take some of these ideas that I had and really had to live them every single day if we were going to get through it as a family. And you know, my wife was going through chemo. Uh, we had COVID quarantine. We had to deal with two small kids being homeschooled. It just seemed like really anything that could go wrong was going wrong. And so you really had to focus every single day on living, truly living, breathing these principles, these habits. And so that's the outline. I thought to myself, well, there's this handful of things that successful people do. And then I had this and I started breaking it down with different book examples and you know, examples from my own life that I could draw on. So that's how the book ended up being written because it had the, the really good outline. So really there's seven main habits of success. Uh, the first one being work ethic. The second one being internal locus of control. Number three being positive mindset. Four is discipline. Five is your purpose and meaning. Six is going to be failure. And then seven, at the very top of the pyramid, you have the recharge. So that's the layout. Those are the seven habits in the book. Yeah, great. I like that next to last habit, failure. Just like the Chinese say, you know, chaos equals opportunity. 
then failure really is the path to success. As long as you can learn from the failure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's the thing. So I'm sure you'll probably agree with this, but a lot of people are, are so afraid of failing that they never get started in the first place. And that's actually, that's the wrong approach to take because anyone that's successful has probably failed a lot more often than, than other people. And it is really sort of what you learn from failure that catapults you to future success. You just, you keep learning and growing and you don't, you try not to make the same mistake more than, you know, once or twice because you are learning from it. So it is pretty ironic that in a book about success, there's a whole chapter about failure, which I would say, you know, is one of my more favorite chapters in the Oh, yeah, I mean, success goes to the people who try stuff. And some of the outstanding examples are inventors in our past, like Alexander Graham Bill, I forget, failed 1,400 times, something like that, right? Trying to get to where he wanted to go. And he was just tenacious about he's got to get that goal. It doesn't matter how many times he has to fail. So I know that's an extreme example. But it's certainly true. If you don't dare to try, then you're never going to get anywhere. That's for sure. Absolutely. Couldn't agree more. And uh, one of the interesting things about digital marketing now that we're all real familiar with is the AB or the ABC testing. Mm -hmm. In other words, you can send an email that has a certain flavor to it to 500 people, send a different email, same idea, but worded differently. And then a third email is even different send all three of those groups of 500 people and you get immediate feedback on which ones fail so to speak and which one's going to be the right one to use the successful so yeah yeah so uh, actually in the chapter on failure it's funny that you mentioned that because one of the examples that i give is when you're creating ads to you know run on social media the idea is that the vast majority of the ads are, are going to fail and they're not going to be very good and that's really the idea behind it because if you have let's say 10 20 different variations, you know that 15 of those might not do any good, but it's really, you're just after the you know handful that will be quite successful. And that's really what you're after. So when you kind of reframe things and think of it that way, you're like, okay, well, it's almost like you know, a natural selection, you know, survival of the fittest. You're just throwing a bunch of things out there that you, you think are okay, but you're totally okay with a lot of them not doing very well because you know that you're going to get a handful of well-performing ones. Yeah. So I'm, I'm a voracious reader. So I've probably read, I don't know, 800 books in my career. Maybe that, that may be, yep. yeah, right. That may be, that may be a low number. And so the more you learn, the, the better you can figure out how not to fail. And yep. here's a good example from sales. And that would be most of the salespeople don't do so well, the 80% from the Pareto principle. And they're really good at selling to 25% of the prospects. And that is the prospects are the same personality style they are. Therefore, what the salesperson wants to give is exactly what the buyer wants to get. And they're not worth a damn selling to the other 75% of the prospects because they don't know how to modify their approach to the personality style of those other three personality styles. So you can avoid failure in some cases with knowledge. That would be an example. So even in my books, I'm a voracious reader as well. I love to read. You know, I always have a book with me no matter where I go. Yeah. And so that's actually, that was part of the outline of the book was drawing on different books. So it was almost like a meta analysis of, yeah. you know, like a literature review of success. And that's really, that's what helped guide the, the seven principles because 
I started realizing that, hey, you know, a handful of uh, top athletes in the world do these number of things. And then on the flip side of that, you start reading books about uh, have nothing to do with fitness, right? It's all entrepreneurship or sales, you know, whatever it is. And you start to notice a lot of these commonalities. And that's when I really started to think to myself, well, gee, that's, that's really ironic that, you know, people that are successful, no matter what the, the industry is or no matter what they're doing, tend to share these handful of things in common. I thought, well, that's a pretty neat thing that probably needs to be you know, shared. And a lot of it's not necessarily new, but sometimes you just need to hear things in a little bit different way for it to really resonate. And I sort of realized that a, a couple of times in the book writing, uh, reading process. Oh, no, I totally agree. In fact, my second sales book was called The Top 10 Skills of the Elite Salespeople and Close Deals Faster. And none of that was my idea. I just kind of packaged what everybody else said, organized it, and described it in a, a simpler way. You know, so we always we're always trying to make the complex simple. So yeah. there's very there's very few new ideas, actually. <laughs> Well, totally. Yeah, yeah. And so I specifically remember talking to the co-founder of RP with me and I was saying like, man, I feel like one of the criticisms could be that people might say, well, there's nothing new in this book. And he said, yeah, maybe, but go read a Dale Carnegie book from the 1940s, uh, How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. And this is a book written in you know the 1940s, I believe. Yeah. In the very first page, what's the first thing he says? There's nothing new in this book. <laughs> Here we are, what, you know, 80 years later or something like that. So it is really funny how that works. Yeah, you're just really packaging a number of ideas, putting them together, perhaps in a new and better way for people to really get something out of it. And it sounds like when you hear you describe your seven steps, that's exactly what it sounds like to me. We've talked a lot about step six, I think, right? Failure. What's one of the first steps that you think people really need to focus on? Well, so the, the base of the pyramid is, is work ethic. And ironically, that's the shortest chapter in the book, because really, I think the idea there is work ethic is important. You know, hard work is important. But at the same time, you can only say so much about it. And really, I would say the biggest concept behind that is just that no matter what kind of ideas you have, you have to actually put them into action. Without that action, well, you're never going to become successful. So that is the first principle, but the one that I think might arguably be the most important is uh, internal locus of control. And so a lot of people, they're familiar with that idea, but they've never really heard that term before. And really the locus of control just means when you view outside events, do you think that you have a say over what happens to the outcomes, or are you more of just a bystander and you have no control over them? And it makes a pretty big difference if you have more of the internal locus of control. So the example, that I like to give is, you know, if it rains out, right? You can't control the weather. So a person with a more external locus would kind of get down, maybe it would ruin their day or whatever. But on the flip side of that, someone with an internal locus of control, it's not really going to bother them. They know that they can control how they respond to anything. And also like, well, what could you control if it is raining? Well, you could wear rain boots. You could take a rain jacket. You could take an umbrella, of course. Or, you know, four of my favorite, you could leave earlier, right? If you know it's going to be bad traffic, these are all things you can control. And so successful people tend to focus on that rather than putting too much, you know, effort and concern on what other people are doing because, you know, we can't control other people, unfortunately. Well, exactly. And totally agree with you about work ethic. And almost any advice you ever hear about giving to young people and they're starting their career is, you know, just outwork everybody else. <laughs> You'll almost always... <laughs> 
always be successful. I'll give you a couple of a quick example from a couple of friends. So one friend has a 17-year-old son, and in this pandemic, great work ethic. He started working at Domino's in the back shift and essentially outworked everybody else. And at age 17, after about six months, became manager of the back shift. And everybody else in the back shift was older than he was, and everybody agreed he was the right person to be the manager. I have another friend who has two daughters home from college, you know, and so they're home. And both of them can get a job if they wanted to, and both of them just kind of sat on their butts at home, which just drives my friend nuts. <laughs> so, so just outworking everybody else, not, not being a crazy person about work, but, you know, just working harder and better that everybody else is a true a path to success, in my opinion. Oh, absolutely. Yep. John, excuse me, it's time for a quick commercial break. Over 200 correlation studies show that natural aptitude is the most significant factor in predicting sales success. Asher's Advanced Personality Questionnaire, the APQ, consistently identifies peak performers in outside sales, inside sales, sales management, customer support, and 17 other business positions. Go to asherstrategies.com today or call 866-833-9941. That's Asher Strategies at 866-833-9941. We've been speaking with Nick Shaw about lessons on achievement and leading your best life. Now back to John and Nick. So, Nick, we talked about one and two and six. How about number three? Yeah, positive mindset. So really being a little bit more optimistic tends to lead to, especially in the entrepreneur or sales world, right? You have to think you can't really go into a sales call thinking that you're going to fail or thinking that you're going to mess up. You have to be a little bit more optimistic. And what's also interesting about positive mindset is it actually ties really well into the internal locus of control. Because if you are a hopeful person, you typically have hope because you know that your actions matter, that you know that you can eventually improve your outcomes because you can take specific steps and actions to get better or different outcomes. So I always found that really fascinating and just sort of that slight difference between uh, you know being hopeful versus just being optimistic, which optimistic is good, but being hopeful actually puts a little more action into that because if you know that you can do things to change the outcome well that actually ties back into work ethic and so it's kind of funny how they, they all tie together so if you're more hopeful you know you can make a difference because you are going to put in more work and do more action totally agree and you know mindfulness is important all throughout sales one of my favorite descriptions of the importance of mindfulness would be this so salespeople without much thought about mindfulness their thought process going in to see the customer is, how can I, how can I make a sale? And the brilliant salespeople go into that same process with the customer thinking to themselves, how can I find out what the customer's problem is and help the customer solve their problem? So that's a totally different mindset. And of course, the latter mindset leads to success much more than the mindset of I've got to sell them something. Yeah, well, so we might be jumping just a, a tiny bit ahead of ourselves here, but uh, in the recharge section, ah. uh, in that chapter, there's a little bit on mindfulness. And the thing that I sort of realize about mindfulness, and 
you know, mindfulness can, can mean different things to different people, I suppose. You know, you can try to do yoga or meditate or whatever it is, but uh, really, I guess the secret or the biggest takeaway that I got from, from mindfulness was really something happens to you. You know, do you sort of react immediately and emotionally or you kind of just take it and you, you know, think for a split second, you get to that more logic, more reasonable part of your brain. And when you start doing that, I think it is just like you said, you start to see things from a slightly different perspective. You're not quite as impulsive or emotional about things. And then when you have that sort of slightly detached perspective, I think that really helps because then you're kind of like now looking down on the situation and you can, you can step back and sort of realize, oh, like I shouldn't really be worried necessarily about you know, what I'm thinking. I, I got to go in and I got to find out what does this customer really need? I gotta find out what they need so then I can provide the solution for them. So it is really interesting how this all ties together. And, you know, like we said before, not necessarily new ideas, but, uh, you know, you'll say something and it'll kind of trigger something on my end or vice versa. And, you know, successful people, well, we share a lot of the same things uh, in common. Well, that's so great. And there's a whole other aspect of mindfulness that I've learned over reading many books about this. Mm-hmm. And that is when things happen externally, mm-hmm. then we all have an emotion that wells up inside of us or thoughts. And one of the main thoughts I've learned to use for myself is when something happens like that, then I have to say to myself, I can't control what happened, but I can control how I react. And even though I want to react in a, say, in a judgmental way mm-hmm. or an emotional way, then I just quickly realize to myself that is a total waste of energy. And so we're all judgmental. We, we can't help it. And I'll just give you an example. When I see somebody who is really obese, then my first thought is to be critical of them. Why don't they have better self-control? But then I say to myself, you know, from what I know about the relationship between the NIH and the big pharma and, and big food companies and how they all interact together and how our food essentially makes us obese, then I'm just saying to myself, it's not their fault. So that's another whole aspect of mindfulness, controlling our reaction and controlling our judgments. It really keeps us in what you call that positive mindset. Yeah, totally. Well, it sounds like what you just said is internal looks at control as well, right? Something happens to you and then you kind of get to determine, you know, how you want to go about it. So it, it really is interesting how all these things tend to interrelate. And uh, just a quick point on the, uh, if you take someone that, that is obese, it is really a complex thing because our environment really, in a lot of ways, is not necessarily set up in the best way for a lot of folks, which when we talk about the, uh, the fourth habit of success, which is discipline, well, something that I notice, and this is especially true with athletes and people that are, you know, a bit more serious about their nutrition, is that you think of willpower, and it's something that can kind of come and go a little bit. Yeah. And the people that seemingly have the most discipline or the most willpower, they tend to use it the least. And when I started to notice that from hearing all these different athletes say the same types of things, I thought to myself, wow, that is a really powerful thing because, and a good example would be, if you know that you have some foods that you just can't not eat, right? Well, don't keep them in your house because our willpower is fleeting 
if it's in the house, at some point you're going to get worn down, you're going to eat it, whatever. Like that's part of setting up your environment for success. So the people that do all these great things, they typically have a pretty good environment around them. Now, obviously there's probably some cases you know, where they don't, but you're just making it a lot easier on yourself when you do set yourself up for success via a good environment around you. Oh, totally agree. In fact, several years ago, I read um, James Clear's Atomic Habits. Yeah. And terrific, terrific book. By the way, one of the main things I got out of this book was I've always thought that to create a new habit, it took 30 days. Some people would say 60 days and on and on. And what I got from his book is that actually is not the case. It's the number of repetitions that's important. So if you don't do a number of repetitions of a new habit, you can get there in a very short period of time if you do a lot of repetitions. As you just said, he has these rules like availability, he calls it, which is what you're talking about. So yeah, if you put great chocolate chip cookies out on the counter in my house, I'm probably going to eat one. If they're not there, I'm actually not going to buy them. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Well, so I have another great example too. So I kind of got into, uh, you know, not a great habit. Uh, it's, it's probably a little bit debatable, but you know, I was known to have some energy drinks here and there. And finally, I just got to the point where I said to myself, I'm just going to stop buying this stuff. And then all of a sudden, I literally, you know, I cut it out the next day because I didn't have any more. And, and I thought to myself, I'm not going to drive the, you know, seven minutes to the grocery store to pick this up and, and you know, pay for it and then drive back home. Like that, that's like a, you know, 15, 20, 25 minute process. I mean, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to do that. And so, yeah, the, you, say, you set up your environment and all of a sudden you're much more successful. Yeah, no, totally agree. So let's see, what habit haven't we talked about? Have we talked about number five? Uh, yeah, not a whole lot. So the, that's purpose and meaning, which you know, I think a whole lot of people could really make the case that it could be the foundation of the pyramid. And uh, you know, really, if you have a big enough sort of calling, you know, your, your purpose for why you, you want to do what you do, and probably really, really important for entrepreneurs, it just makes things a lot easier. We talked about you are going to fail, you're going to slip up, it's going to be hard, it's going to be a long process. And if you know all these things, but if your why is really strong enough, it just kind of helps you overcome, helps you persevere a lot more. Oh, no, I absolutely agree. In fact, in my sales training business, the why for our company is making the complex simple yeah. for salespeople, sales managers, and CEOs. In the longevity company, our why is just a modest why. It's to save a billion lives. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> and so those, those, are, those are what drive us, right? The why. And there's a great example from Japan. Japanese women outlive American women by about seven years, and they have multiple studies that show that every single woman in Japan has a personal why, and there's actually a Japanese word for it. And it doesn't have to be really big like one of mine to save a billion lives. It could be as simple as keeping my street neat and pretty. And so that drives that Japanese woman. That's what really drives her for her whole life. And she lives seven more years just because of that. So yeah, the, the why is so important. And John, unfortunately, it's time for my why, which is to keep us on schedule. <laughs> so it's time for the wrap up. Gosh, so I, I'm not finished yet, Nick, and I don't think you are either. It's been so much fun. It went by so fast. So let me just make a recommendation. Again, a lot of our listeners are running or on an exercise bike or walking the dog and don't necessarily have anything to write on. 
So perhaps you could pick maybe your top habit or maybe uh, the top two or three and let people know what they are. And then I'll call also, of course, let them know how they can get your book and get associated with your business. Yeah, easily. Yeah. The top three are internal looks of control. Really just focus on the things that you actually have some say and influence over. Don't get caught up worrying about what other people are doing too much. It's just going to lead to nowhere good. Number two, have a longer term time horizon. Don't get caught up in the instant gratification society and world that we live in. Be okay to go longer, have that longer term time horizon, be a little bit more disciplined. If you can do that, you're going to be better off in the long term. It's not a short term game. It's a long term game. Number three, don't be afraid of failure. Just try to learn from it, grow, get better. Know that you are going to fail and slip up along the way. And that's just kind of how it is. The last thing that I'll add in is if uh, you'd like to get a copy of the book, it's called Fit for Success. You can grab it on Amazon. It's only $14.99. And to be honest, it's you know, about 150, 160 pages. It's meant to be you know, uh, relatively short and uh, some take-home messages at the end of each chapter or if you, know, if you read it in a couple of days, you'd have some things you could immediately put into practice. You'll, you'll be better off. All right, terrific. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show. Thank you for having me on. It's an honor. And thank both of you. That's all the time we have for today. For our listeners, be sure to subscribe to Asher Strategies Radio on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast venue. You can also ask Alexa or Siri to play Asher Strategies Radio. From now until we meet again, John Asher reminds us to please, please get out there and sell something. <music>